Good morning, everyone. My name, <laughs> my name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here. I have to say, this is pretty surreal um, to be back in this space after 20 months of being uh, elsewhere. And I know it wasn't our plan, and we have uh, a fuller plan to be back um, in a more regular fashion in a couple of weeks here with the beginning of Advent. But oh, it is such a joy to be with you this morning in this space. We are in the last week of our sermon series, Naked As We Came. Uh, Naked As We Came is a series that I, uh, that kind of comes out of my late night musings, wonderings, and prayers up with Cameron and my newborn daughter, um, who is now four months old. Um, and this final piece, as we've, we've talked about what it means to enter into the world with the gifts of God, unashamed, delighting in creation, invited to surrender to the goodness of the world, to experience one another, to build trust. And that's been uh, such a journey for me as a new parent, uh, for Micah as a new baby, and hopefully for us as a community in reflection. And so I would like to end this series with one final week where I argue to you why my child, Micah Overton, is the perfect child. (laughs) Now, I think this is a feeling that a lot of parents have at some point or another. I would argue that anyone has that feeling at least for one fleeting moment anytime they are truly in love, when they look at another being and say, you are perfect. But I also want to prove it to you, and so um, as, you know, a form of receipts, here is a little loop of Micah. This is Micah. She is perfect, (laughs) and I'm so in love with her. I'm, like, obsessed with her. But it's interesting because when I take Micah around, and we don't take her around a whole lot, but we live in a big complex with a lot of apartments in it, and so when we are going through the hallways with Micah. Sometimes our neighbors will stop us and ask us questions about Micah. And one of my neighbors, multiple times, stopped us, and the question she had was, is she a good baby? Is she a good baby? And I, I kind of froze up the first couple of times because I was like, uh, yeah, she's a great baby. But the third time that I was asked, is she a good baby? My response was, I I don't actually think that there's such a thing as bad babies. And the response I got was, oh yeah, well, my daughter had a baby and uh, my daughter thought she was a good mom until she had her second and realized her first was just a good baby. And I thought, wow, (laughs) there is a lot of intense judgment in that. Was her daughter a bad mom? Was the second baby a bad baby? What do we mean by good baby? Micah gets a lot of praise already in her life, which is lovely, but that praise too is loaded. Again, our neighbors, some of whom I'm telling you are lovely, wonderful, kind-hearted people who want Micah to grow up to be a full human being in every possible way, even they revert to some scripts we have in our culture. They say, she's such a good baby, we never hear her cry. It's always one right into the other, she's such a good baby, she's so happy. She's such a good baby, we never hear her cry. I want to say, you never hear her cry because our apartment complex has really solid walls. 
And that is the only reason, because my baby cries a lot. And we would actually be incredibly worried about her if she didn't cry. Crying is her main form of communication, to say, help me, or I'm hungry, or I'm distressed. Crying is good and important, but it's also inconvenient. It is frustrating to adults. When Micah cries, does anyone say, oh, what a terrible baby? Of course not. But when we actually talk about babies or children, when we compliment babies or children for being quiet or compliant or obedient, there's always a subtext there. If there are good babies, there are bad babies. If there are good kids, there are bad ones. If there are good people, there are bad people. And in our culture, we talk a lot more about good people and we imply a lot more about bad people. This is a really human construction of value and humanity. This good, bad, binary dichotomy. It sets us up for hierarchy. It justifies our power dynamics. It assigns value judgments to people's basic humanity. And it permeates our culture. It's how we like to order things. Even beyond the value judgments, we really, really feel most comfortable when we can categorize people in tight little boxes. So the first question that we always get asked about Micah is, boy or girl? And then the next category is one that the observer gets to assign. Oh, she's so beautiful. Or, so sweet. So sweet is usually the absence of so beautiful. We hear that with good and not good as well. Such a good baby. Or, quite a set of lungs on that one. And whatever is left unsaid is an implied negative. And maybe that's why so many of us long for constant reassurance that we are good. Because hearing it once isn't enough. Because every moment we are not hearing it is a roaring absence that might imply we are not good. For far too many people and children, there's also something filling that absence, and it is the active messaging that we are bad. Now, when we talk about God, a lot of times we characterize God as a parent, and we say that God is the perfect parent. A lot of people like to talk about God as the perfect father. So how do we think God thinks about us? Is God also in the hallways, scrutinizing children, wondering which one's a good baby and which one's a bad baby. Well, that's actually a lot of our default thinking about who God is. God is some sort of cosmic Santa Claus with a naughty nice list. In psychology, we call this black and white thinking. It's technically splitting. This pattern of saying things are only one way or another way. And it's actually extremely limiting. It harms our relationships by putting people into categories of absolutes. All good, all bad. And if someone is all good, the moment they make a mistake, that transports them into a category of all bad. Or it just doesn't compute. Black and white thinking can harm our self-image. Because we have an image of perfection that we absolutely cannot attain, and therefore every moment we fall short of our experience of perfection, we are the opposite. We are imperfect. We are bad. Black and white thinking actually limits our emotional range. We don't have room for a nuance in our feelings, even. 
when we only have these extreme categories. It's a common human error. It's one that we tend towards when we are under a lot of stress or when our mental health is suffering. When we are at our best and most supported, most grounded and most aware, human beings have enormous capacity for nuance. We don't see people or ourselves or the world as all good or all bad in any of those same kinds of ways. And yet we tend to think of God like us at our worst. God is the cosmic scorekeeper, watching, constantly evaluating to see if we belong in the good column or the bad column. We are made in the image of God. But when we recreate God in the image of our worst impulses, we end up with an authoritarian punishing God who is constantly deciding whether we are good or bad. But God is not like us at our worst. God is not even like us at our best. God is better than our best. And so when we think about God as the perfect parent, we need to think about the perfect human parent and then have exceedingly higher expectations for God than we have for human parents. We would not expect an authoritarian figure with a bad case of black and white thinking to be the perfect parent. But we again, we recreate these common thoughts about what it means to be good. And think about what we like to encourage in children. We want children to be polite, quiet, obedient. Somehow we also want them to grow up into bold, courageous, prophetic leaders. But while they are in our house, or in our school, or in our, in our space, on our bus, we want them to basically not be a problem. The, the phrase, well-behaved, I actually like Googled it. I was like, what do, what do I mean? What do we mean when we say well-behaved? And the words that came up were polite, courteous, docile, compliant, essentially not causing a problem for adults. We want kids to be convenient, but people are not convenient. Not at birth, not in childhood, not as teenagers, and not as an adult. God did not create you to be convenient. And yet, we spend our whole lives trying to contend with the messaging that anytime we are inconvenient, we are a problem. The other day, Cameron and I were in a parking garage, and we were kind of doing the little dance with somebody about how to take up space. He said, it's okay, you're not a problem. And Cameron and I both kind of looked at each other and had to unpack that in the car. Because in the Midwest here, we have a lot of like, oh no, you're good, you're okay. But this was the first time either of us had heard the phrase, you're not a problem. And it's such a deep and profound reassurance. Because how many of us worry all the time that at some level, we're a problem. And we need to be better. We need to be more polite. We need to be contributing more or more courteous or less in the way. But you know what? You are not a problem. And you don't have to be convenient to not be a problem. God doesn't want us to grow into people pleasers. God doesn't want for us to move through the world feeling like we can never do anything right. 
These messages about what makes a good baby or a good kid or a good person, they're wounds in our world. They are not from God. We've explored at Zao before, unpacking a little bit, the story of the garden. This foray into creation, when God made all the things and gave us the garden, and then something went wrong. We hear the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and how engaging in that, pulling that fruit, really created a wound in the world. Now, a retelling of that story that's extremely common is one that's about obedience, compliance, that we were bad. The human beings didn't do what they were told, and that was bad, and that set up this cascade because we basically disrespected our authoritarian parent. But we have explored here before a different understanding, that actually the substance of that tree was at issue. That this idea of good and evil is a binary, a dichotomy, a simple black and white thinking. That God said, don't engage in this black and white thinking. There is so much more here. There is so much more nuance. And the first original wound of humanity in the new creation was falling into binary thinking. Thinking that there was such a thing as good or evil. And starting to evaluate, place value judgments on the good creation that God had made. This is our original wound. When we think of God, the perfect parent, if we strip away that fruit of that tree of good and evil, if we strip that away, what are we left with in our image of God? If life is not a test for you to pass, If God is not evaluating you at every moment, if God is not Santa Claus putting you in the naughty nice list, if God is not the elf on the shelf evaluating your every move to see whether you are good or bad, if we take that out, does the character of the God you worship have anything left? Because so many of us have been taught to reduce God to this moral accountant That is not how God interacts with us. That's not what God made creation for. God actually did the evaluating at the very beginning. God made all the things. God said, I did good. God made you and said, ooh, very good. The end. Evaluation over. This is not a continuous test. You cannot fail. God looked at you and said, you are perfect. Our perfect God, more perfect than any earthly parent, has the capacity for nuanced thinking, is not trying to put you in a category of good or evil, is holding you in your fullness and celebrating. You passed. If there ever was a test, you passed the moment you were brought into creation. Now, it can be confusing here because God is still using one of our terms, very good. And that can feel like a term of judgment or evaluation. Is there a way we could have been bad? I think it's important to note that God is calling us very good before we had a chance to prove it or disprove it. That God is laying the bedrock foundation of our self-image. God is telling us who we are. We are good. And also, when I tell Micah that she's perfect, which I do like on the daily, 
I don't mean the same thing as the you're a good baby. I don't mean, Micah, you are without flaw. I don't mean, Micah, you can never change what you are now. I don't mean, Micah, you are pleasing to me with your behavior. I don't mean all you can do at this point is really ruin your perfection. When I look at Micah and I say, you are perfect, I mean, I am completely in love with you. I mean, you are everything you ought to be, nothing more, nothing less. I mean, I feel so lucky to be your parent. Now, I can hold on to this moment because she is an infant and because I am constantly flooded with oxytocin. I believe every parent and everyone who has ever been truly in love has had that moment, however fleeting, of you are perfect. And for us human beings, it is a fleeting feeling. The world crashes in, our hurts, our wounds, the ways that we wound one another. But God, for God, this feeling is eternal. God has the capacity to hold that all along with all of our many characteristics and flaws. The nuance of existence is not lost on God as she holds on to that feeling. The bedrock of God's orientation to you is you are perfect. I'm so in love with you. You are everything you ought to be, nothing more, nothing less. I feel so lucky to be your God. When we talk about God loving everyone, I think this is the most difficult theological subject we engage. A lot of times we'll talk about suffering or the problem of evil or what happens in the end of times or the afterlife, and we discuss these as the thorniest theological topics. And perhaps intellectually and philosophically they are. But experientially, pastorally, the hardest thing for us to grasp is that we are fully and unequivocally loved by our God. But that is the first thing God ever said to us. You are good, very good. If God is the perfect parent, God looks at you and sees the perfect child. And so yes, Micah is the perfect child. Because every child of God was made in perfection for perfection, not as a value judgment that pits us against one another or creates hierarchies or says some people are more perfect than other people, but that looks at a person, at a being in their completeness, in their nuance, and says, I'm so in love with you. You are perfect. You are everything you ought to be. I am so lucky to be in relationship with you. This is how God feels about you. And I know that it can be hard to truly believe that. We need to divest ourselves from the idea of a strict authoritarian parent as the perfect father in God. We need to challenge that assumption that is baked into so much modern American Christianity that God is punitive and evaluative and using life as a test to see whether we go on the naughty list or the nice list when we die. That God is about coercion. That God is trying to use sticks and carrots to change our behavior, trying to bait us with the promise of heaven and frighten us with the promise of hell. 
That is not actually our God. That is the God we have created in our own worst image. The way that we try and control one another's behaviors, trying to coerce and motivate people to change their behavior. But God has already evaluated your goodness. God has decided who you are. You are loved. You are created and you are loved. Does God want us to act in good and loving ways? Absolutely. But like any good parent, God wants to do that by cultivating in us loving kindness, by showing us by example sacrificial love, by teaching us through story and parable and time spent together what it means to be in loving relationship and to build a world of justice and eternal life. God is in this with us as a parent, holding our hand, encouraging us to learn the things that are most essential to us. Not because we're bad and we need to be changed, but because we are good. And because we are good, we are capable of doing good. In this series, we have talked about shame, delight, suffering, surrender, and trust. The authoritarian figure would have us believe that shame is a motivational tool. It is coercive in order to shame us into behaving in a certain way. Delight is an incentive. We are allowed to delight in the world as a reward for good behavior. Suffering, punitive. We suffer because we've done something wrong and God is punishing us. Surrender becomes mandatory submission to our authoritarian parent. And trust isn't trust so much as unquestioning allegiance. When we get into spaces where we are told that we cannot question God or doubt God, that any worries or fears or pains we have are God teaching us a lesson and that we should welcome our pain because God is punishing us or teaching us, when we are in religious spaces that use shame as a motivational and behavioral tool, these are all enormous red flags that we have constructed God in the image of our own worst impulses. That we have this authoritarian parent who is trying to coerce us. Do we think that an earthly, perfect father would demand unwavering and unearned trust simply because? We certainly see that behavior in parents. Do we think that a perfect mother would want you to feel shame about who you are so you can be molded into something else? We certainly see that in parents. Do we think that a perfect parent would cause you harm on purpose, pain or suffering to control you? We certainly see that in our parenting. But in all of those cases, we call that wrong. In some of those cases, we call that abuse. We need to take a really close look at how we talk about God and what our internal expectations are of the perfect father. Because that one that I have just described it's a lie. It's a falsehood, and it could not be further from the truth. I, as a flawed human being, have ambitions for parenting my child. I would never want to shame Micah into behaving a certain way. I want Micah to delight in the world because the world is good and because delight is beautiful. 
I never want her to suffer, and yet I know she will, and so I try to be with her so that she is never alone in her suffering. I try and give her the skills and support to navigate suffering with the reassurance that she will never be abandoned to it. I want Micah to... I want Micah to surrender to the support of the world, not because I want her to be obedient or I want to coerce her, but because holding all of that resistance in her body isn't helping her to live, isn't helping her to get the support and flexibility she needs. I want to teach her to surrender to love when it is merited. And I want to cultivate trust with her. Not just have her trust me without question, but I want to learn to trust her. I want to build the kind of relationship where trust is cultivated so that we can be close, so that we can collaborate, so that we can co-create the kingdom here on earth. If we can imagine a human being attempting to parent in this way, and we can believe that that is more moral than what I described earlier, then we know that God has even more for us, that God's ways of parenting are even more generous, even more perfect. In the scriptures, Jesus talks a little bit about this parenting. He says, hey, ask God for what you need. God has your back. Do you think that an earthly parent, if their, God, if their kids said, I'm hungry, would give them a rock? Do you think that on an earth, if a kid cried out for food, you would put a scorpion in their hand? No. And you guys are earthlings. You guys are flawed humans. How much more so your perfect parent in heaven is going to do right by you? You have to hold God to a higher standard. God is the perfect parent. And you are the perfect child. You are capable of doing good because you are good. And so, when we hear that looming threat of the authoritarian God who wants to control you, who wants to put you on the good or bad list, who wants to either put you to, you know, invite you into heaven for being a good kid or send you to hell for being a bad kid, we need to raise all of those red flags and we need to come back to the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God who, before good and evil entered the picture, looked at you and said, ooh, you're perfect. Brought you into being and said, ooh, I did good. I am so in love with you. I am so in love with you. I am so lucky to be your God. You are exactly as I made you. And so when we say you are loved by God because of who you are, that is what we mean. And again, I know it is hard to believe, but this is the gospel truth. You are loved by God. That is who you are. That is who you are. And when we engage in these games that pit us against one another, that create these hierarchies that say there is good and bad kids, good and bad babies, we are diverging from the gospel truth. You are perfect, loved perfectly by the perfect God. God is so lucky to love you, and we are so lucky to be loved. Will you pray with me? God, this is such a hard one. We pray that you would do what you have been doing for all eternity. Pour your love out on us that we might catch wind of it, that we might feel your spirit at work in us, that we might believe at first in glimpses and then more fully radiating out of our beings exactly who we are, who you made us to be. 
perfectly loved by perfect love. God, you are good, and you call us very good. May we believe you. Amen.